So we're in a short little New Year's uh, series on foundational essentials, foundational essentials of our walk with the Lord. Last week, the message was uh, God's great high priest for us in 2022. So we started out with the person of Jesus, particularly his compassion for us in our suffering, his compassion for us in our trials. And that's what we did last week. The next few weeks, we're going to focus on two categories. Um, uh, broadly speaking, we're going to focus on, well, I should say three. Prayer and the Word kind of go together. We're starting that today. We might finish with prayer today. We're definitely going to focus on the Word today. And, and uh, you're going to see that it's, it's part and parcel with prayer. But uh, if we need to add some more next week, we will on prayer. Then we're going to finish up with uh, one another, discipleship. And um, <clears throat> speaking of that, I just want to ask you all um, to please be thinking about, be praying about uh, discipleship. Be, be thinking about uh, uh, discipleship groups, the DRs, groups of three to four folks, I'm going to invite you all into another season of that uh, over the next couple of weeks. So I just want to encourage you guys to, to be thinking and asking God um, if that's something for you, if and, and if so, to put people on your heart that he might want you to, um, to come together with over that season of fellowship. So please have DRs, discipleship, these small groups on your heart and mind. Please be praying about them and thinking about um, who you could care for and who you might even want to receive care from. Uh, both categories are completely biblical and good, but the Lord would, would want us to serve one another in, in fellowship and uh, in some way. This methodology is not written in Scripture, but it is offered to us as a way, a pathway to methodology to try to, to kind of help. So um, that's what we're going to be talking about. So last week we did Jesus, the person of Christ, our great high priest before the Lord. Today we're going to focus on the word and prayer and maybe a part two on prayer next week. And then we're going to close with um, discipleship, the one another's caring for and loving one another. So today our passage is going to be John 15. And actually this passage in John 15 verses 1 through 11 is going to be like the foundational passage for each of the next three messages um, of this series. So um, I'm going to ask, Katie, are you still there? Yep, still here. Okay, I'm just going to ask you if you wouldn't mind just reading the, the passage and then I'll begin the message. So as the slides come through, you can just read it um, carefully and reverently, and, um, and then we'll, we'll start with the message. All right. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. 
By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Thank you, Katie. Um, so as I said on uh, a few minutes ago, this, this passage is going to be sort of our garden for the next uh, two to three messages on starting 2022 on the right footing. And I want to start this morning on, on this passage, but in particular, one verse in this massively important passage. I want to think about the whole passage as a whole, but I, but I particularly want to focus on as we as we move into it on, on one particular verse. And that verse is verse seven, John 15, seven. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So that's gonna be our, our major focus this morning. But, but I, I wanna consider that single verse in the context of this larger section. I think it's so important to understand not just what that verse means, but but how important that verse is. Like, not just what Jesus is saying in verse 7, but I think the whole passage helps us understand how very important uh, verse 7 is. Now, this whole passage, verses 1 through 11, could justify a series. Uh, when we did, John, years ago, we, we, we took a long time through this section. We took set multiple messages. And, 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 I think if we step back and really study this, we'd see that this this passage that we read this morning, John 1 through 11, it, it really captures, in summary, the totality of the Christian life, especially, we'll see uh, in a couple of weeks, especially if you add verses 12 and 13 about loving each other, laying down our lives for another. It really captures the totality of the Christian life. It is a recipe for the whole life of Christ. Uh, what does it mean to be a Christian is is captured in in all its major categories in these passages. So I want to consider this this larger passage before we look at seven. First, let's talk about the setting of this passage. It is the night before Christ's crucifixion. He is about to go to the cross, and and being Jesus' disciple is about to become really difficult and costly, like it's never been before for these 12 disciples uh, as Jesus goes to his execution. They will soon become lifelong targets for uh, particularly in the immediate, but then for the rest of their lives. And, and so Jesus is trying to call them to stay. And he is trying to call them to not leave him, abandon him, to not fall away from him because that's gonna look really attractive to them uh, like it never has before in the next few hours. Following Jesus up until this point has been tense sometimes, nervous sometimes, but it's always been under his protection. It's always been uh, not too far away from some manifestation of incredible power that Jesus has expressed that certainly would have had to have given them a, a lot of security. Uh, it, it would have been very close to Jesus' constant wisdom. It would have been uh, following Jesus meant being surrounded by adoring crowds. And so there was a lot of security in all of that. And, and in just a few hours, all that's going to be stripped away as Jesus is stripped away from them. 
and and immediately what's going to begin is what will be a lifetime of persecution uh, and suffering awaiting them. But but other times in their lives, there's going to be other reasons to escape Jesus' claim on their lives and to fall away. For the disciples, just like all of us, there will be times when the comforts of the world will appeal to them more than Jesus. Uh, the acceptance of people will tug at them more than Jesus. The wishes of family members will pull at them more than Jesus. The pull of money and power and ease. All these, these things will need to be not necessarily eliminated from their lives. Most of those things have a good purpose in our lives that God can use in our gifts, but they're all going to have to be subordinated again and again under Jesus as the Lord. And so Jesus is calling them, take take life in me seriously, stay with me, don't give up. And and he uses this metaphor that would have been really familiar to them as as readers of the Bible, as understanders of the prophetic writings, he uses a metaphor of a vine and a vine dresser. It was an ancient metaphor for Israel, and, and Jesus brings that right into their current uh, mental, uh, their, their current mental spotlight. Jesus explains himself as the life-giving vine. He explains his father as the one who cares and watches over that vine, and he explains, he he uh, places them as those who are the branches inside that life-giving vine that he is. And he pleads with them, because he loves them, abide in me, abide in me. That's the command you're going to see again and again and again through these verses, abide in me. And it, it, it's a, sounds poetic to us now, but it, it's not a complicated word. It, it really just means stay with me, remain in me, continue with me, don't fall away from me. Don't leave me. Remain. Continue. Abide. Abide. Look at verses 1 through 3. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. Jesus states this metaphor, and then he gets right to the central issue, remaining in him. And he, Jesus doesn't just call them to remain in him. He also, part and parcel with remaining in him, he, he explains to them what God is after and, and what will really be part and parcel or uh, a functional equivalent to remaining in him. And it is fruit-bearing, fruit-bearing, bearing fruit and abiding in Jesus go together in this passage. If you are abiding, you bear fruit. If you're not abiding, you don't bear fruit. So remember this, it'll be important as we come to verse 7 later, but God is after fruitfulness. He's not after lifeless religion. He's after disciples that are so connected to him and united to him that they carry his life in their own lives, and they bear his fruit. Jesus doesn't flesh out fruit perfectly here. We'll see pictures of what it means in loving one another and in praying and seeing the answer to prayer. But we don't have to work super hard and, and be, uh, you know, PhDs to understand what God is looking for. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 would be a great place to go when we think about fruit bearing. Jesus is after 
our hearts expressing his heart to the world and to him. So he's after that Galatians 5 fruit we see in love, in joy, in peace, in patience, in goodness, in faithfulness, in self-control. Fruit, fruit bearing includes the will of God being accomplished through our lives in loving obedience and in, and in trusting following. Fruit bearing includes not just what comes out of us, but what comes out of us towards others. It includes loving our brothers and sisters, loving those still outside of Christ. So fruit bearing, though not perfectly defined here, is I think what anyone who's been a Christian for a while and, and knows the scripture a little bit would, would, would know as the Christian life in, in its best expression. Those fruits of loving God, and loving one another and loving our neighbor in all its appropriate nuanced ways. Jesus says something really sobering uh, right away in verse two. He says, branches that don't bear fruit are taken away. Branches that don't bear fruit are taken away. More on that in a moment, but I wanna note again that fruit bearing in this passage is essential. It's not an option. To not bear fruit is in this passage the dangerous place to be. So Jesus also tells us that fruit bearing will, he promises this, it will involve pruning. That is, it will involve difficulty. In verse two, he says, every branch, uh, he, he, I'm sorry, he says, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. If you're familiar with agriculture or, or not, most of us probably understand pruning, it, 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 on, on a basic level, some of you guys who are really into agriculture, like Kim, would be able to really go into the science of pruning. But suffice to say, pruning involves the painful treatment of, of the plant or the vine in order to ultimately bless the treatment. So you, you cut off certain branches or certain leaves or twigs that are, are not good for the overall growth of the vine. And and then ultimately the, the life of the, the plant is able to be more efficiently and effectively distributed in the ways that you want it to go. So, but really in, in the metaphor for us, what it means is pain. It means there are going to be times of suffering and that, it, that, that the point of that is to bring more fruit. So G Jesus is telling us here that God, uh, that, that being a Christian will often involve God bringing us through various trials various sufferings in order to grow us, not in order to destroy us, but just the opposite, that the suffering and the trials that God will ordain for our lives are meant to bring lasting fruit out of our lives. And ultimately, we'll see in a second, they're meant to bring deep and lasting joy. But they're trials. It's painful. It's suffering. And it's promised to us. Now, let's consider verse 3. This is a really critical verse in this passage as well um, for, for thinking about what's at the foundation of what Jesus is calling these people to do, these men to do, us to do, when he speaks of abiding. So I want you to notice verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Jesus says the disciples have already been cleaned by the word I have spoken to you. The Greek word, therefore, word that I have spoken to you 
is logos. Okay, so Jesus is saying, already you are clean because of the logos I have spoken to you. It's a word that's not easy for us to define. It's a glorious, beautiful, huge word in, in Greek understanding. It's a word that's related to truth and to wisdom. It, it, it's a word that is connected to the idea of the fundamental truth that's at the foundation of all things. The fundamental truth that's at the foundation of all things. In, in John's gospel, Jesus is the Logos. Jesus himself is the foundational truth of all things, uh, the source, the ultimate truth of the universe. We see that in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Word, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. Jesus is the Logos of God. So when we think about Logos being referred to as a word, we can make sense. When we think about Logos translated as word, we can kind of make sense of that if we think that if we think of words as those things that reveal, that reveal truth to us, that communicate to us. Jesus is the revelation, the communication, the message, the word, the communication of who God is to us. Jesus is the very manifestation of the truth of God revealed to us. To know and understand Jesus in John's gospel is to know and understand God, to understand the logos, the foundational truth, uh, that's the, which is the foundation of and the source of all other truth. So to have been cleaned by the logos, to have been cleaned by the Logos is to have Christ revealed to you and to embrace that revelation. To have been cleaned by the Logos is to have the truth of God's ultimate truth of who he is revealed to you and to have embraced that truth. And, and I want to kind of simplify this because that that's a lot of like, that's a lot of words. I want to just try to simplify it this way. In John's gospel, or in the New Testament, we, we meet Jesus in some really crucial ways that I think are at the core of what does it mean to meet Jesus as the Logos. We meet Jesus in some really core, crucial ways that is at the core of what it means that he's the Logos, the truth of God revealed to us. He is, for instance, God the Son. Jesus is the eternal Son, who is very God himself. So he is God the Son. Number two, he is the Savior. He's the Lamb of God, given for all of our sins. Number three, he is the Lord. He is, he is the Lord of our lives. He's the King and the ruler of our lives. In John, he's the good shepherd who leads his own as his sheep. He's the judge of all the world, who, in whose... Uh, uh, under whose authority all must bow. So, so Jesus is God the Son. Jesus is God the Savior. Jesus is God the Lord. He is God, Savior, and Lord. So th there's more we could say about Jesus, but I think those three ideas kind of encapsulate Jesus revealed to us. He's revealed to us as God the Son, as the Savior from our sins, and as the Lord of our lives. Okay, so, so now Jesus is saying, you've received that revelation of me as, as the Son of God, as the Savior of your souls, and as the Lord of your lives.
Now he's saying, abide in that revelation. Remain, continue in that revelation that I am the Son of God, that I am the Savior from your sins, that I am the Lord of your lives. Receive that revelation. You have received it. It has cleaned you. Now remain in it. Abide. Continue in it. So now I want to try to, to, to try to summarize in, in a statement, what does it mean when Jesus says, abide in me? And, and I, I think this is an, a fair way to encapsulate it. To abide in Jesus is to continue to trust him as your savior from sin and to continue to follow him as your Lord, depending on his power to do so. We, we could spend paragraphs explaining abiding, but if I'm just going to try to capture it simply, I would say to abide in Christ is to continue moment by moment, day by day, to continue to trust Jesus as your Savior from sin and to continue to follow him as the Lord of your life, depending on his power to do so. So relying on Jesus, we continue we abide, we remain trusting him as our savior, and we remain, continue to trust him as the Lord of our lives. And, and I, I, want, I, I think just getting that simple idea is, is so important because it, it, I think it makes it all less intimidating. It makes it clearer. So I just want to stop for a second and just say, is anybody, did anybody not get that? Did anybody not understand that? Maybe you just didn't even hear it because I'll repeat it. Okay. Jacob, do you want to ask anything about it or do you just want me to repeat it? If you could just repeat it one more time. Yep. Okay. I think a simple definition for what does it mean to abide in Christ is to continue to trust Jesus as the savior of your sins and to continue to follow him as your, as the Lord of your life. And to depend on him, to depend on his power to do so, to, to do all that depending on his power to do so. We continue to trust him as our savior. We continue to follow him as our Lord, and we depend on him for the power to do so. And continue means continue, always, okay? Remain, there's, there's no stopping. So it's, it's a day by day continuing. It's a moment by moment through the day continuing. Everybody there? Okay. Now, in verses four to five, Jesus is going to tell us more. He's going to say, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And this, this encapsulates the idea that I ended with, which about abiding, which is that we're depending on his power to do so. By faith, we're depending on Jesus' power as we continue to seek to remain in him, to, re, to, to continue to depend on him as Savior and, and to, to follow him as Lord. We're counting on his power and not our, on our own. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing for Jesus. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing for Jesus. His very life, his very power is the wellspring from which we draw to serve him with, to love him with, 
to live for him with. And then in verse 6, Jesus says something very sobering, and he says it to us because he loves us. But Jesus is searingly honest about the importance of staying, of continuing, of remaining with him and in him in verse 6. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Uh, This is a a sobering uh, set of words, and it's meant to be sobering. If and it's also logical if if christ is truly the source of life if christ is truly the sustainer of life then if we remove ourselves from him if we walk away from him without coming back without repenting without returning there's nothing left for us but a withering and god says what the end of that withering will be is is a a a, a broken off and being burned. And, and there's nothing, there's nothing I, I think, nuancy or sophisticated to do with this, except to just to say it, it's, it's really bad. It's, it's terrifying that, that Jesus is saying that for those who fall away from him, there's nothing left. If they don't return, if they don't repent, there's nothing left for them but ultimate destruction. So he says, abide in me, stay with me, bear fruit. Now, I don't think this means that a true believer can lose their salvation. We could go to other passages to talk about that. This is a metaphor. Um, Metaphors aren't meant to explain every single thing and every aspect of theology. Uh, But it does mean, I believe it does mean, we could look at other passages, that people can come very near to Christ. People can come very near to Christ and experience blessings of Christ and, and see the wisdom of Christ and even be touched by His Spirit and yet never truly belong to him. And and they will show that by living a life that bears no fruit. They will show that by living a life that bears no fruit, by or by falling away from him and not returning to him. Now, Jesus is not telling these things to, to us to terrify us, but to drive us to him in reverence and to drive us to him in dependence. Not to terrify, but to sober us so that we we stay with him or we return to him. And he's doing all that to give us joy, to give us joy. In verse 11, we see the reason why Jesus is saying all these things. He wants us to have deep and lasting joy. In verse 11, Jesus says about this, the whole passage, he says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is really, really encouraging and beautiful. And it is a beautiful glimpse into the heart motives of God towards us. Like, why does God do what he do? Why does he do what he does? Why is he saying these things to us? Why is he going to go to the cross for us? It is because he wants us to have joy. The reason he's telling us to abide is because he wants us to have joy. The reason he's being honest about the dangers we'll face and the suffering we're going to go through is because he wants us to have joy. He wants us to have true and lasting joy. Not simply the joy of nice circumstances, but the joy of being so connected to him that we experience his joy. And at the core of who God is, is joy. So 
So that's what God wants for us. And he says, abide, abide. Abide lasts, uh, leads to lasting joy. So it's a big deal to abide, right? I mean, I, that's kind of a summation. It's Abiding is crucial. Abiding is, is essential. Abiding is foundational. Abiding is synonymous to living the Christian life. Abiding is continuing to trust in Jesus as your Savior and continuing to follow Him as your Lord, depending on Him. So this passage and all its implications, they're not like uh, for elite Christians. They're not optional for us. This is the Christian life. Day by day, moment by moment, abide. It's not a special call reserved for really mature Christians. It's simply what it means to be a true Christian. A true Christian remains with Christ. A true Christian bears fruit of Christ. Doesn't mean we're perfect at all. We could go to lots of places to explain that, but it means that this really marks us. We remain with him. Now, and we bear fruit for him. Now, as we go through this passage, Jesus is going to take this, this general picture, and he's going to hone in on a several key aspects of remaining in him. These are, he will hone in on, on several key ways that are essential to abiding. So he's talked a lot of metaphor. He's talked a lot of poetry, so to speak. And he's, but he's going to hone in in this passage to a couple of really non-metaphorical, functionally clear ways that mark real, true abiding. And, and, and that's where we're going to focus on verse 7 today. But, but you can see others in the passage besides verse 7. If you, if you saw verse 10, you'll see that abiding in Christ involves obeying his commands. As we expand to verse 12, 13, we see the chief among these commands is to love one another, to lay down our lives for each other. And we're going to talk more about that in, in either next week or the message after. And that really focuses on our discipling of one another. As, as normal Christian life. But right here in verse 7, we get another picture of what abiding means. And it's this. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is the verse I want to focus on for the rest of this morning. If you abide in me, if you remain in me, continue in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Verse 7, Jesus here is giving us a crucial and central key to abiding in him, his words remaining in us, and us being so affected and informed by those words that they shape our prayers, which then, of course, he answers because they're birthed out of his words, his desires. If you abide in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. We continue in Jesus' words. They remain in us, and we're so shaped and informed by those words that they shape and inform our prayers, and then God answers those prayers, bearing fruit out of our lives. So let's try to understand this a little bit more microscopically. The Lord says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. On a very fundamental, basic level, Jesus is saying, if you want to abide in me, you must care about my words. You must care about what I say. And, and, and in verse 7, I want you to just make a note that 
that this word for words in verse seven here, it's the, the normal way we think of words. It, it's, it's not the lagos from verse three. Words here doesn't refer so much to fundamental uh, metaphysical reality truth. It, it, it's more normal. It's what Jesus actually says. It's his, his opinions, his viewpoints, his commands, his decrees, everything the Lord says. And, and everything also, this is crucial. We could look at John and understand this in other places. It also means everything that Jesus says through his appointed apostles. Because he tells us in John that he's going to speak, he's going to remind them of other things, and they're going to speak those things to others. Okay, so everything the Lord says, not just in his own words, but through his apostles, whom he promised he would continue speaking to and speaking through. Jesus says, let my words and my words through my apostles stay in you and with you. That's what he wants. And, and of course, right, we, we probably all know he's not calling us to simply like know his words like an accountant might know the tax code really well with lots of understanding, but very little esteem. You know, I haven't, I haven't known any accountants who are like, I, I don't know that many accountants, period, but I haven't known any accountants who are just like, look at this tax code. I just treasure this particular new tax law. Let me just tell you about it and how it's given light to my life. No, I mean, they know the tax code, but they don't esteem it. They don't treasure. That is not what Jesus is talking about here. He, Isaiah 6, 2 is a nice verse to kind of, you know, grab us in terms of what God wants his word to do for us. Isaiah 6, Jesus, God starts out explaining that he's the God who created all things, the God who sits in heaven above earth. He's this transcendent, high and lofty, holy God. And then he says in verse 2 of Isaiah 6, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So you, even though God dwells in the heavens and he's bigger than the whole universe, the almighty, all-powerful, ever-living God, he says, I look towards the one who is humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. So when Jesus says, let my words abide in you, he wants us to remember, these are the words of the Son of God. And so he means that his words are a holy treasure to our hearts. They're a holy treasure to our hearts. And that his words are to speak to our hearts. They're to capture our attention. They're to occupy our mind. They're to shape our desires. All the way to forming our prayers. All the way to forming our prayers. Which, of course, again, are prayers that the Lord will delight to answer because they're formed by Jesus' very words, Jesus' very heart. So Jesus is saying, do you want to abide in me? Do you want spiritual fruit in your life? then let my words remain in you. Don't let go of them. Stay close to them. Stay after them. Consider them. Reflect on them. Make them your heart's diet. Because this is central to what it means to abide in me, to have a life that bears fruit, to have a life that does not wither and is not cut off and thrown to the fire of spiritual destruction. Continue in my words. Let them abide in you. Verse 8, Jesus says, by this, by you remaining in my, by remaining in me and my words remaining in you, 
and then by your prayer, shaped by my words, and then the fruit coming out of your life, out of that prayer, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. This is how you will show that you are my disciples. So we said earlier, God is after fruit bearing, and Jesus is impl implying this again. God is after his life, his love, dwelling in you and coming out of you. God is after others being nourished by your life. He's after your brothers and sisters being nourished by your life and the lost to still to come to Jesus being nourished by your life. And, and this fruit coming, this fruit bearing comes from abiding in Christ, that is being in Christ, that fundamental idea of continuing to trust him as Savior and Lord and having his words in particular, having his words remain in us. So maybe practically, what might this look like? I mean, this, this can look a lot of different ways in our lives, but a, a really just simple example might be something like this. You open up God's word, you read a passage, it affects your heart, you cry out to God because of how your heart's affected, God hears your cry and answers your prayer, and your life is changed because of that interchange with God. You see his word, your heart is touched, you cry out to God according to that word, your life is changed, and God's life is expressed in yours and out of your life, okay? So you might open up one morning or one afternoon or one evening to Matthew 5, okay? Just gonna really, I don't wanna say dumb this down, but just really simplify this. You open up to Matthew 5, you read verse 21 through 22, and it says there, you've heard that it was said, these are Jesus' words, you've heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. That's another way of saying we'll be liable to the judgment of, of to, to, to the judges. Um, and whoever says, you fool, that's a term of contempt and despising and disgust, will be liable to the fire of hell. So you see this, you, you ponder it, you think about it before the Lord, you, you process it, you take it seriously, you take it to heart. And you realize as you do that, that you become aware of people, maybe in your own house or maybe in your workplace or maybe in your church, people you've been despising in your heart. You've been judging them. You've been condemning them. Your attitude towards them hasn't been one of love, but of judgment and disgust, maybe maybe uh, simply anger, but, but anger without cause, anger you're not dealing with. There are ways to be angry and not sin. Jesus is not saying that here. He's saying your anger will be, it will be evaluated by God. It will be brought before God's throne to be judged. But you just recognize that instead of loving your enemies, you're, you're really giving into hatred, disgust, low-grade, high-grade, despising. And because Jesus' word is important to you, it sits in your heart, you ponder it, and it starts to trouble you that you realize you're hating right now. Someone in your house, someone at your workplace, someone at your church, someone in your community. 
And so you just cry out to God because you're touched by his words and you, you, you sense your need and you just say, Lord, I, you see this. You see this going on in me. Ah, it's, it's awful. It's not what you want. Please help me to love person X. Please help me to, and forgive me for hating person X. I've been, I've been just in my head going over and over again about how person X is so blah, 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 and just despising person X. Person X isn't perfect in this analogy, right? Like there are real problems with person X. Person X has been irritating us and tempting us, and they've been a pain to us. They've been doing unreasonable, unkind things to us. Person X may be somebody that we even need to separate ourselves from and all that, you know, just being careful. Don't throw pearls to swine. Give to dogs what is sacred. Jesus isn't asking us to be dumb about relationships, but he is commanding us not to give in to hatred and not to give in to disgust and condemnation. And so we recognize that. And so we say, God, forgive me. And please, God, bless person X. Help my heart to be one that wants their good, that hopes for their best. And you cry out to God. And whether it's that afternoon or you keep praying over days into weeks, you pray and you start to sense that your heart is affected, that your heart is softening, that you aren't just asking God to change you. You are experiencing change because the Holy Spirit is working that change in you. The life of Christ is now being expressed in you and out of you. You're the branch in his vine and his life, his sap is seeping into your branches and it's bearing the fruit of forgiveness, the fruit of love, the fruit of patience, the fruit of compassion. That's, that's just a, I mean, we, we, again, we could go through a bunch of different texts. We could talk about a, many different stories or ways, but that's just a simple way. We're affected by God's word. We cry out to him according to his word and he answers and bears fruit of our there's fruit in our lives according to his word. So um, just, I, I, I want to now just ask you guys to consider briefly three things about God's word that I'm hoping will help us see the importance of being in it and around it and its relevance. Okay, and, we're, and then we'll conclude with a couple of applications. First, Jesus' words affirm his rightful authority. These are some reasons why his word is so important to stay near. Okay, I, I should have prefaced this. These are three reasons why his word is so important to stay near. And, and first, Jesus' words affirm Jesus' rightful authority in our lives. Th this, is, this is always something that's crucial to recognize, but, but I think maybe never more so than in this current age and in the direction of this current age. Jesus' words contrast sharply with a worldview where defining our own truth is increasingly seen as a sacred right. Jesus' words sharply push against in contrast with a worldview in which defining our own truth is increasingly seen as a sacred right. Because Jesus' words come to us assuming that he is the one in authority and not us. Jesus wants to be our friend. He wants to be our servant. He wants to be the love of our life and bring us joy. But he comes to us always as the one in authority and as the Lord. Through Jesus' words, he tells us what is right and what is wrong. 
He tells us what we should seek and what we should flee. He tells us what we should hope in and not hope in. He tells us what we should value and what we should abhor. He tells us what is to come and what is at stake. And when Jesus' words are abiding in us as they should, his view of things, his view of reality, his view of life becomes ours because he brings his authority with his words. And we grow in seeing things, not in our bent, fallen way, but in his way, the way that's authoritative, the way that's true. So far from being limiting though, Jesus' words actually in in this regard turn out to be life-giving when we see and accept them because we're finally seeing and accepting reality as it is under his authority in, in a universe designed to function as he meant it to because he is the ultimate authority of the universe. So Jesus' words affirm his rightful authority in our lives. Number two, Jesus' words, this is so fundamental, it's so basic, but it, it, it's, it's helpful, I think, to think about. They allow us to have an actual relationship with him. Jesus' words allow us to have an actual relationship with him. I want you guys to think about that, that words do something crucial that's easy to miss. They make relationship possible. They make knowing possible. They make intimacy, connection with people possible. You, you know this intuitively. If you want to know someone, really know someone, you have to hear their words. You have to hear their words. You have to hear their ideas articulated, their opinions expressed, their viewpoints put forth. Grunts are not going to do it. Moans are not going to do it much. Faces are not going to do it very far. You need words. You need words. And if you don't believe me, just come to Dorcas on any fourth Sunday and, and try to get to know someone really well who speaks a Mideastern language or more often speaks Spanish, if you don't know those languages, and try to develop a relationship with them. I mean, there, there may be smiles and mutual mutterings that communicate something maybe here and there, but nothing on the level of really knowing or real intimacy or real friendship can happen because you're both stuck. You're both stuck inside your souls. You're both stuck inside your invisible viewpoints, your invisible experiences, your invisible hidden opinions. You need words. Words take the soul, the invisible soul that's in me that you cannot see, and they reveal it to you. It's how I get my hope, dreams, fears, desires, how I get that all out. It's through words. And this is how Jesus relates to us. He uses words. He uses words. So if you really want to know him, you must have his thoughts. You have to have his opinions, his viewpoints speaking to you. Lastly, Jesus' words allow us to be renewed in his image. Jesus' words allow us to be renewed in his image. And this is, this is unique to Jesus, okay? Because what's extraordinary in particular about Jesus' words and God's words is they don't just reveal They don't just state authority, as I've talked about in the last two points. They don't just make relationship possible. They create. Jesus' words create and transform the people upon whom they have an effect. Jesus' words create and transform. Okay? Psalm 33 
In Psalm 33, David says about the words of God. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. So David is separating all people from God in this respect. God's the only one who, when he speaks, it comes out of nothing to be. He's the only one who just has to command and the universe, the sun, the moon, just obey. They, they take form, they come into being, and they just exist at just as he wants them. God speaks and the universe obeys. God speaks and what was once nothing suddenly is. God speaks and darkness is filled with light. God speaks and Lazarus, who is dead, comes to life. And of course, God speaks the gospel of his son and what, what was, who was once a hardened sinner becomes a new creation. And for the believer, this is still how God's word works. Central to his words continuing in you that you hear and receive and treasuring is that they change, they transform. In Psalm 19, God's word revives us. It gives us joy. It warns us. And it rewards us when we heed it. In John 17, God's word sanctifies us. It sets us apart. It makes us holy. Now, this isn't something that just happens by the words themselves, but the Holy Spirit acts on his words to transform. The Holy Spirit takes God's words and makes them agents of change in our lives. The Spirit helps us to understand the words, convinces us the words are truth, gives us power as we hold on to the words. So, if Jesus' words do this, and if he says his words must abide in us, then this begs the question, we're closing with application here, this begs the question, what are you doing to stay close to his words what are you doing to stay close to those words what am i doing to stay close to his words what are we doing to position ourselves to hear his words to reflect on them to wonder about them to give them due time in our lives what are we doing because there, there needs to be something right let me just offer a couple of points and i, I think next week when we talk we bring prayer into this the second part um, we'll, we'll elaborate more, but I just want to give you two simple words today. Decide and plan. Decide and plan. Decide. First, I just want to say, listen to Jesus' words to us today. All that he has said to us today in this passage. And just make up your mind today that this is going to be important to you. Or if it already is important, that it's going to be just as important or more important than it has been before. But to decide today, either for the first time or fresh, that you don't want your life to be fruitless. You want it to be fruitful. That you don't want your life to wither away and be spiritually destroyed. You want it to flourish. That you want the joy that God wants you to have. Decide that you're going to seek, with God's help, to do whatever it takes to give Jesus' words a place in your life every day. To give Jesus the ability to speak into your life 
into your life every day, to speak into your heart every day so that his words can remain in you, abide in you, so those words can shape your values, shape your views, and shape your prayers. Shape your prayers. Paul commanded his, his junior apostle Timothy, or his junior delegate, he commanded Timothy, discipline yourself for the sake of godliness. Discipline yourself for the sake of godliness. He did this because even though Timothy was saved, regenerate, born again, eager to follow Jesus, eager to follow Paul, Timothy needed to be disciplined. He needed to make a decision and be committed. And that had to look like something. Paul says, discipline yourself. Timothy loved Jesus. He wanted to know Jesus. He wanted to experience the joy of Christ. He wanted spiritual experiences and good feelings and growth. But Paul doesn't just say, have spiritual experiences, have good feelings about Jesus, grow. He, he doesn't say that. He says, no, discipline yourself for the, for the sake of growing. Discipline yourself for the sake of experiencing Christ. Paul knew that if Timothy would discipline his time and focus his time on Jesus, that the experience would come, the growth would come. He knew that if, on the other hand, Timothy simply wished to mature or wished to have spiritual fruit but didn't do anything, it wouldn't be enough. So it's the same with us. We, we just have to face up to the fact that we must decide to discipline ourselves to create space in our lives with God. And I mean, th this has always been true, but it is so true today. This thing, this thing is, it, it is a part of our biochemistry now. It is grabbing us all day long. It is speaking to us all day long. And we, we must then fight to discipline ourselves to create space. We have to face up to the fact that we have to decide to discipline ourselves for God or life and this phone and social media will decide for us. So now listen, some of you guys might look at the last few months or years of your life and just think, oh, I'm so bad at this. I'm so bad at this. I get it. I, I get it. Let me encourage you. Bite off something that you feel like you can chew. Okay, so like a couple of weeks ago, I introduced this idea of the 30-day challenge. It's not because I want us to only have 30 days of time in the Word and prayer, and then the next 60 years, we're off the hook. It's because I wanted to invite you into something that you felt like could be manageable, instead of coming to God and say, forever I will change. Well, God, I'm going to commit to you for 30 days. So do something you think is manageable. Bite off something that you feel like you can chew. Say, God, I'm going to, I'm going to give you the next month you know, five mornings a day for 20 minutes. I, I don't know. We'll talk next week, maybe more about specifically what it could look like. My point is make a decision and give him something that you feel like is, is, is worthy that you feel like, okay, Lord, that, that, that's a commitment, but, but I'm going to, I'm going to sort of in, in a reverent way, I'm going to test you in this, not in a put God to the test in an arrogant way, but I'm, I want to really see if I invest in you, how you'll meet me because I want that. So bite off something you can do. And you're welcome to try the 30-day plan. If you want to join us on that, there's about 12 of us doing that right now, just let me know. I'll add you to the list. You can add an extra five days after some people are done. 
I, I got a very simple plan I can give you on having a, a time before God's word and prayer. Lastly, <clears throat> this is kind of a subdivision of, of what I just said, plan, plan. Deciding without planning is not going to lead to anything. In a book over 25 years ago, D.A. Carson said that the most urgent need of our time was to give an attention to the pursuit of knowing God. I mean, that's not like an earth-shattering idea, that the most urgent pursuit of our time is that we pursue knowing God. You could say that about probably any age, but he had some specific reflections on it that were smart because he was a smart guy. But, but what I was intrigued by is what he said was the chief obstacle in his estimation for people knowing God. And he just said it was simply that Christians just not just didn't decide, but they didn't make any plan. They didn't make any plan to. They just wouldn't, they, people just assumed it would just happen in their life. Or if they made a decision about it, or they felt a motive, they didn't plan. You've heard the phrase, fail to plan, plan to fail. Have you ever heard that? If you fail to plan, you'll plan to fail. It's true in dealing with God's word as it is anywhere else. So again, kind of connected to the last one to decide, make a plan, have a set time in a set place as quiet as possible where you can be alone with God. And again, I'll, I'll, I can resend out the 30 day plan, the option today. It's, it's just very simple. Your plan should be smart, but it can look a lot of different ways. Chapter of the New Testament, one Psalm, keep going through the New Testament, then add Proverbs if you run out of Psalms. I can give you lots of ideas. Mainly, we usually need a simple one that's doable. So email me if you want one. There's an article I wrote on the web called 10 Ideas. We're probably going to use some of that next week when we double down on prayer. But th the point is, a simple plan made ahead of time that's waiting for you each morning will do wonders for your enthusiasm about this. Okay? So... We can fill all that, all this out more, but, but mainly I think today I just want to leave you with a sense of, I hope by God's grace, Lord, your word is really important. I've got to stay close to it. I've got to stay near to it. I, I, I can't. I can't fall away from it. I, I can't ignore it. I, I hope that the Lord has done something to create that conviction in your heart. Let me pray. Lord, please help us to treasure your words. May your words remain in us. May we find ways to, to do that, to create that space in our lives, that we, we remain in you, we bear fruit for you, and we experience your joy. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.